I was a scrawny kid from kindergarten to my senior year in high school. I never got picked for the team. I was always in that pathetic pile of rejected, non-athletic losers that no team captain ever wanted. It didn't matter what grade, what school. It was standard practice for all PE coaches to pick the most athletic boys to be team captains and then let them pick their team members. And you know how it goes. You know, they pick all the other boys that look like they do. I put up with this for years until one day in my sophomore year at high school, I'd had enough. I pleaded with my PE teacher to make me a captain for soccer, which I hated. Nevertheless, much to my surprise, he said, okay. Anyway, it, it seemed all one had to do was ask. As the opposing team's meathead captain and I began picking our team members, I picked all the geeky, nerdy wimps, just like me, to be on my team. And you should have seen the look on some of these guys' faces, because they had never in their lives been picked to be on a team. Of course, the opposing team of jocks clobbered us. We stood no chance against them. And none of us wimps was the 12th man that day. But it was all in good fun. You know, a turn of the table as it was. A nose up to the status quo. Now to be the 12th man, you know, that's a different kind of being picked for the team. On January 2nd, 1922, the heavily outgunned Texas A&M Aggies were facing the top-ranked Center College Praying Colonels on the gridiron of the Dixie Classic in Dallas. An Aggie by the name of E. King Gill, a squad player for Texas A&M's football team, was up in the press box helping reporters identify players on the field below. And what was happening on the field wasn't pretty. The Aggies found themselves plagued by injuries, with their reserves seemingly dwindling at every play. As Texas A&M coach Dana Bible, how'd you like to have a name like Bible, last name of Bible? As coach Bible looked across his rapidly emptying bench, he suddenly remembered Gill's presence up in the stands. Coach Bible waved Gill down to the sideline and told him to suit up. Gill returned to the sideline where he stood ready to play for the entirety of the game. When the last play was run, the Aggies found that they had pulled off one of the greatest upsets in college football history, winning the game 22-14. to And Gill remained standing, the only player left on the team's bench. Gill's willingness to serve his team in 1922 has passed down from generation to generation of Aggies for more than nine decades. As Texas A&M student section stands together during the entire football and basketball games, a symbol of the 12th man on the team. The power of the 12th man is echoed in the unity, the loyalty, and the willingness of, to Aggies to serve when called to do so. And this is the reason Texas A&M has earned a name that embraces Gill's simple gesture of service, home of the 12th man. That's according to their official website. Well, I'll tell you, there was another 12th man in Judea, roughly 2,000 years before Gill, who didn't sit on the sidelines, but was every bit as called and willing to serve. 
Matthias. Where did he come from? All this time from the beginning since the baptism of John, this man Matthias has been with Jesus and the twelve disciples. Yet he is not chosen to be one of the twelve as far as the four gospel accounts are concerned. The other man, Barsabbas, was with them the whole time too. They're members of the and others. You know, every time you hear, we hear the disciples and others who follow Jesus. That's who Matthias and Barsabbas are. And this is a really fascinating text from Acts today because it gives us a glimpse of the events between Jesus' ascension to the Father's right hand and Pentecost. The action shifts completely to the disciples who are now on their own. Jesus has left and he has not sent the Holy Spirit yet, at least in the way it comes at Pentecost. They're about the business of choosing a replacement for Judas, the bad Judas, because, you know, there's another Judas on the team, but he's a good one. They're replacing the bad one who, as you heard earlier, came to a gory demise in a desolate field. If we take a closer look at this reading from Acts, we see the 11 disciples were familiar, that we're familiar with from the, from the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Plus, the women are there too, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. The disciples, plus the and others, are about 120 people. My friends, this is the church in its infancy. These people are witnesses to everything that's happened since Jesus showed up at the Jordan River and was baptized by his cousin. As Christians, we may take it for granted that these 120 men and women are the authoritative witnesses for the early church, but it needs to be said anyways, frequently, because the forces of darkness are at work every minute of every day to discredit these witnesses who have gone before us. In fact, the old evil foe has been doing this since those days when Peter stood up and preached the good news of Jesus. It's easy to misconceive that the witnesses of Jesus wrote their story once and then disappeared. Ascended into heaven with Jesus, never to be heard again, leaving the testimony of the apostles to the winds of chance and doubtful care in the hands of the and others, like Matthias and Barsabbas. And this plays out today in the popular telephone game. You ever played the telephone game as a kid? No? Phil Brandt, when he was professor of religion at Concordia, Portland, says every year he would get the same old canard from a student who claimed that the apostles were not trustworthy and credible witnesses because everyone's played the telephone game where you start a message and you pass it down, you whisper it into the ear of the person next to you, and it goes around, and what you heard by the time it gets to the sixth or seventh person, the message isn't even close to what it started out as. And this is supposed to be proof that the New Testament scriptures are unreliable because these so-called witnesses 
orally passed down this, this narrative that got corrupted over the years. And maybe you've heard someone even say this to you. But here are some things to remember about this popular yet unfounded assumption. First, the telephone game is often played by children who are having fun in the moment and not necessarily taking the task seriously of preserving the initial message in its accuracy. They just don't care enough. In fact, they know how this game goes, and it makes it more funny and enjoyable to purposely distort the message into something nonsensical and hilarious sounding. If the game were to be played seriously, and there was more at stake, such as your life, well, the message being passed around would most likely not be so compromised, would it? Second, these witnesses were around for a long time. Peter survived into the 60s, and John, it's believed, lived into the 90s. Not the 1990s, of course. I'm talking the, the 90s, the original 90s. You know, they would have set the record straight to any corruptions in the testimonies of the apostles. I mean, just look at Paul. You know, he wasn't a witness to the resurrection on Easter, but a witness to Jesus' living presence after his ascension. He was all about writing to the churches, setting the record straight on the original message that he had given them. Whenever he heard that they were changing it or misunderstanding it or being influenced by others who are trying to change it. The bottom line here being, the witnesses are credible. Jesus is alive, and the Holy Spirit is here with us, and is creating faith in us to believe what the witnesses saw, heard, and did. For, your, for yours and mine, eternal benefit. Let's always remember, the Bible is God's word to us, breathed out by Him to these witnesses, mentioned here in Acts. And others, of course, such as David, Moses, the prophets in the Hebrew Scriptures. And now I'll refer you to the epistle reading from 1 John, who lived into his 90s, in the 90s. <laughs> he says, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. Now back to the action here in Acts for a few more minutes, because the twelfth man has some significance for us even today. Peter wants to elect another witness. Why? 
Well, it appears that it was a long-standing tradition and practice that 12 witnesses to something carried a lot of legal weight to it. It was commonly held that if 12 witnesses attested to a crime, one could skip the trial and move directly to the sentencing. That's how much credibility 12 witnesses had. It was considered foolproof, error-proof. Now, our judicial system today isn't quite like that, but it has some of this still with it, in that a jury of 12 still remains for capital criminal cases. But when Peter saw that only 11 had charged to bearing the witness of Jesus, he knew that there had to be a 12th man to carry that weight of credibility, and the lot falls to Matthias. You got to wonder what went through the mind of that guy, Barsabbas, you know, the poor loser who didn't get picked, <laughs> you know, did he turn away, head hung low and wander off into unbelief? Was he resentful? And did he cry foul and claim the vote was rigged? We don't know. And this is the last we ever hear of him. You know, chances are he remained a member of the and others, you know, no doubt continuing in his calling to whatever the Holy Spirit had him do for the kingdom of God. Matthias drops from view as well if you continue reading Acts. But no doubt he's there with Peter and the other apostles, but he doesn't get any specific action by name. In a way, he's a hidden resource for God. No doubt he continued in Jesus' name, baptizing, evangelizing, healing, providing, preaching, admonishing, administering, listening, and comforting. You and I are often God's hidden resources. Resources he brings to people who are not always necessarily looking for, necessarily looking for us, but receive something from God through us. I'll give you a recent example. Might be the quilts made by the quilters. Eighty of them made in the last year and a half during the pandemic. Handmade in love for others. Shipped off recently to those who will benefit from them, but not knowing who exactly it was that made, made them. Even every day in our lives, we may be a resource for God saying or doing something for another. And we may not even realize it at the time. We look around and often count our deficits. Hindered in sight by sin to count the many blessings from God, He lavishes on us even in the midst of our trials and sufferings. One of those blessings is the living Word of God, the credible Testimony of the witnesses to Jesus, alive, dead, alive again, and ascended. May the witness of God's forgiveness of sin for you, His love for you, and your eternal future secured, keep you going forward, together with us all, to the goal of eternal life. Amen.